My name's Jim Derrick, and welcome to another edition of Chapters. For decades, the treatment landscape for substance use disorder and mental health have remained relatively unchanged. Farm-based therapy offers an innovative, unique, and effective approach to mental health and substance abuse treatment. In studio today, we have Joe and Lynn Wenkes, who tragically lost their son, Jeff, to an opioid overdose on February 5th of 2017. Since that time, they've dedicated themselves to promoting the mission of Cultivate Care Farms. Also in studio, we have the farm's founder and executive director, Andrew Lappin, and its clinical director, Deb Madera. We'll have a chance to learn about farm-based therapy and hear more about this unique program, which is available right here in our backyard. This show is dedicated to the memory of Jeffrey Wenkes. We have a packed house in studio today, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation, so I just want to Welcome you all to the program. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Good thank you for here. being here. Today's show, we're going to talk a little bit more about the opioid epidemic, which has been ravaging our nation. Inarguably, this is the nation's largest public health epidemic. And we're also going to talk about mental health in a very creative way of treating mental health and substance use disorder that Cultivate Care Farms has developed. It's an old Dutch model I learned today. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce uh, Joe and Lynn, Lynn Wenkes, who are very involved with the farm. So you're actually on the board of directors. Is that correct, Lynn? Yes, that is correct. Okay, terrific. Could Let's talk a little bit about your son, Jeff, which was your introduction to Cultivate Care Farms. Uh, sadly, uh, the Wenkes family lost Jeff on February 5th of 2017. I wanted to t- kind of honor Jeff, by talking about him, I know he had a wonderful experience at Cultivate Care. What type of young man was Jeff uh, as he was growing up? Uh, Jeff was the oldest of three children. He was the oldest brother. Um, He had two younger sisters. Um, He was your typical average child. um, Did okay in school, not the best scholar, but, you know, loved family, loved the outdoors, loved animals. Um, adored his dad and his grandfather um, with all of the outdoor activities, fishing, hunting. Um, He was your typical kid, a great kid, obviously, um, his mother. Really, I would say just an average kid. He was involved in sports in school, worked. Um, He was, again, he was an average student. Um, He liked hands-on activities, loved cars, loved skiing, snowboarding, um, in my mind, just an average, typical kid. Mm, and, and I know, you know, I've known you for quite some time, I think uh, almost 30 years. And um, as we all know, this, the issues that we're talking about today, they know no socioeconomic bounds. Uh, they know no um, uh, defining characteristics in terms of how do you, how do you find a typical uh, person with these types of problems. This is, this is, everyday people walking around facing these these issues. Um, and so it, Jeff then, uh, as he was growing up as a teenager, he developed a problem with, with alcohol and or drugs? be honest with you, mm. I'm really, I don't really think we know exactly when he mm-hmm. got involved in it, to be honest with you. Um, I do know in high school, there was always a house that they could go to where they drank. And um, 
we did it growing up, so I really didn't think too much of it other than, um, you know, I'm surprised the parents are allowing it, but that was the go-to place. Jeff did struggle in school with academics, so in my opinion, he did have some low self-esteem issues. Um, he, Although he was a very smart, intelligent man, he considered himself to be dumb or stupid. Mm-hmm. He did suffer a severe injury when he was in junior high. Okay. Um, he lost part of his thumb. He was prescribed pain meds when we took him home from the hospital. I don't know if that's the point where he said, wow, this is really good. I have I have no idea. Right, right. Um, of course, in, in high school, they drank. Right. They smoked. Right. Um, so at what point he really got involved with the dark heavy stuff i don't right. really know i could add a little bit to that i think and, and again that injury he had he was in eighth grade and they did he was on heavy probably a morphine and i remember him talking about that um then about he was probably about 22 years old he was out working he started to do and and, and again this is during him and i became very much we we loved to hunt and fish together before the hunting season, he started to do some kickboxing over in Walpole with mm. a friend of his, um, had a studio over there, and he dislocated his shoulder. And how old was he then, Joe? He was about 22 then. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And that's a very painful, painful injury. And I know that my feeling is is that that might have been where he took the next step okay. into some yeah. something to help the pain out. Yeah. And, and we were talking a little bit before the show, um, and, and I intentionally asked that question, a problem with alcohol and drugs. And I think that the that where we're headed with this is that, as I have learned from, from our guests today and from others in the, in the field, uh, the problem isn't the alcohol or the drugs. The problem comes in the, uh, you know, why is it that I'm reaching for something outside of myself to make myself feel better? Uh, and unfortunately, with prescription opioids so readily available, that becomes one thing that you can reach for uh, to address those mental health issues that, that is particularly dangerous. So, um, so Joe, uh, just he was 22 years old and he's kickboxing, very active, yep. separates his shoulder. That and along with he became a, again, school-wise, like Lynn said, he wasn't the best student, but he had great driving skills. Jeff had great reflexes, and he, from a very young age, was a very good driver, decided to take his tractor-trailer driving license and became a commercial truck driver. Well, he got all A's in the course and passed the test the first time around. Excellent driver, but they, the other thing with driving, especially he worked nights, long hours. He drove the tandem trailers down the Mass Pike, the weather conditions, very stressful job. And they put a lot of pressure on, and I think that also had a lot to do with him trying to figure out coping techniques to how to deal with the stress associated with driving. Because he was, one thing about Jeff, he was always concerned about driving within the rules. He wouldn't drive outside the rules. He put a lot of pressure on himself to do well. He wanted to be a really good driver. And I think that was another another something that led him to where what he decided to do to address those issues. Sure. So uh, as he goes through his mid-20s, he has a developing uh substance use disorder problem that that you're that you witness and in multiple attempts at recovery is that right yes um the it's funny because when we first found out that he was addicted to opiates 
um, we were shocked. I mean, I was totally taken off. I was totally caught off guard. Um, that being said, we got him into detox, mm-hmm. and I thought, oh, God, this is easy. He's into detox three, four days. I don't know what all the hype is about, about how hard it is to get clean. Well, he went to detox. He came home. We, I think he failed again. We got him on Suboxone, um, trying to get Suboxone um, through a doctor that takes insurance, at least back then, was very difficult. I'm not sure now how different it is. So we found doctors who would take cash only for subscribing. So all they had to do was go to the doctor's office once a month, be tested, have a urine sample tested, and get prescribed. Well, right. okay. So, so for our audience, I just want people to understand what Suboxone is. Um, and I'm going to ask uh, Andrew, if you wouldn't mind, uh, from Cultivate Care Farms, if you wouldn't mind telling our audience about Suboxone. So Suboxone is part of a classification of drugs um, developed similar to methadone and Vivitrol. You'll hear all of these. These are me- these are medications used to abate cravings or to induce sickness when someone does use um, certain substances. So it's um, they all have different mechanisms. Suboxone is a daily, um, typically, sub- uh, regimen of medication in- intended. So if you were to use an opiate, um, it would induce vomiting and quite a bit of sickness and Okay. And so it makes it so uh, whoever is uh, on Suboxone and then using a substance would start to create a negative reaction to it. Okay. All right. So it's uh, medication is part of the medicated assisted treatment therapy uh, that, uh, along with methadone, and we talked about that, and Vivitrol and other types of, of, of things. And it's incredible, Lynn, when you talk to me about... Um, and so many other families uh, mentioned what you mentioned earlier. Um, you had no idea, uh, number one, uh, what you were dealing with. Uh, and then number two, the barrier to treatment, the barrier to entry to treatment is so incredibly high. Here we are in the year 2017, and to get an insurance carrier to pay for anything is almost the, almost impossible, number one. Uh, number two, to find somebody, uh, to find a treatment center and to understand the nuances of what these different treatment modalities are, you almost need a Ph.D. So it's, it's a very lonely and scary environment. Would I be accurate? You are 100% accurate. Um, it is... Um it's a system that is definitely broken, um, and being naive when we entered this journey with Jeff, um, again, I couldn't believe that the system was that broken and it was that difficult to get treatment or to have access to treatment. Um, but no one's talking to parents. You know, we worked with you folks 10 years into your journey, and we just learned that you would never, no one had ever sat down and talked to you diagnostically about what was going on with Jeff and a bigger perspective than just, oh, he uses substances. Right. And I, and I think that's a really important, thank you, Andrew, for that. I think that's a really, really important point. This is a disease of isolation, but not only a disease of social isolation, it's also a disease of medical isolation mm-hmm. because uh, as, as the Wankuses would, I'm sure, agree, and I've had many guests in studio talking about this issue, um, you don't just call a primary care physician and say, hey, my son Jeff is uh, uh, showing signs of substance use disorder. Um, help me out. And, and they lead you down a path. For instance, if, if, if 
if Jeff had had a heart attack, uh, he would have been offered cardiac care therapy and rehab and paid a small copay, and and uh, there would have been cards and flowers and plenty of physicians to take care of that. That doesn't exist in this world. You're absolutely correct. Um, I can remember after Jeff's first uh, detox stint, um, he was released, um, and he was given a packet of information um, should he choose to um, seek further treatment, call this, call that, reach out to this person, that person, no follow-up from the detox. Um, basically, you're your own advocate, which I guess you should be anyway, but considering that, again, if it was a disease, a medically accepted disease, cancer, heart attack, diabetes, or whatever, you know, the doctor would discharge you and give you follow-up instructions. You'd have a specialist to see. You'd have follow-up appointments. None of that happened then. I don't think it's changed since then. So basically, you're on your own navigating a system that you have no idea Mm -hmm. about. And, And Jim, just to add to that, about four or five years ago when we first, when we were in the middle of this, Jeff and I shared the same primary care physician and we spoke a lot. I've, I've been going to the same doctor for a number of years and know him well. He knows me well. And two things he said to me is, you are one of many of my patients that are going through this, number one. Number two, I wish I could help you, but I don't know what to do. If you're just tuning in, I'd like to remind you that you're listening to Chapters Radio. We can be found on my podcast, ChaptersRadio.com, or right here on 102.9 WFPR-FM in Franklin. We are speaking with Joe and Lynn Wankus, and also Andrew Lappin and Deb Madera from Cultivate Care Farms. Mm-hmm. So we have we have our nation's number one health epidemic, which is that is substance use disorder, which is claiming for opioids alone uh, 94 lives a day. And we have physicians that are entirely incapable um, of, of and don't have the tools uh, and aren't equipped to handle this. I think that's a kind uh, assessment of that situation. Yes, I do. Because you, there's yeah. been yeah. situations where even with Jeff and other clients where we've brought them to physicians mm-hmm. and we and or we hear their experiences where they go to a doctor and say, I'm having a medical problem. I need help with this medical issue. Now, if, if I were go to go to a doctor and it was outside of their scope of practice, they'd say, well, let me help you get there. Let's get you into the right people. And they'd be very proactive about it. However, if you're somebody who is in recovery or struggling to get into recovery and you go in for a flu, you start to get suspe- uh, suspicious looks. You're judged. Right. And you don't get good treatment. Right. You don't get even good medical treatment. Yeah, it, it's it's a huge failure of our system. And I think you're right. I, I uh I concur totally. I just want to remind people, you're listening to uh, Joe and Lynn Wankus uh, of Rentham, Massachusetts. Their son, Jeff, uh, struggled with substance use disorder and uh, lost his battle on February 5th of 2017. And I really don't like the term lost his battle. I am I'm, I'm very honored to have Jeff and Lynn in the studio. They are continuing Jeff's legacy of uh, pursuing treatment, uh, reducing stigma, and exposing people to cultivate care farms, which is a really unique therapeutic environment. And we're very fortunate to have Andrew and Deb in studio. And we're going to talk to them in a minute about 
about their model. So we were talking a little bit about the, the show, and, and Jeff had been through a number of uh, traditional treatment therapy, including medication-assisted treatment. He would had some uh, rehabilitation, traditional, I would call it, rehabilitation. And then you found you were exposed to this idea of equine or farm-based therapy. Can you talk a little bit about that, Sure, Joe or Lynn? Yep, um, I'd be happy to. First of all, um, with Jeff's most of Jeff's treatment was based around abstinence in the 12 steps. For whatever reason, Jeff did not buy into the 12 steps mm-hmm. at all. Um, so at least in the Massachusetts area, it's pretty difficult to get into a treatment, I don't know if program is the right word, but some type of um, program that doesn't Um, concentrate on the 12 steps or use that as their basis for recovery. Um, So um, eventually, um, Jeff overdosed and we sent him to Florida for um, short-term treatment. When he came back, um, he always had a love of animals and had um, looked into some places down in Florida So when he decided to come back and we embraced him with open arms because we did want him here in Massachusetts close to us so we could kind of keep an eye on things and help him navigate the system Um, because most people that aren't impacted by this disease don't understand that, yes, this young adult, 33 years old, really is not making the best decisions at the moment because of the damage to the to the frontal lobe, correct me if I'm wrong, because of all of these opioids. So um, to somebody looking in, it might look like we were controlling him, enabling him. However, we needed to help him navigate a very broken system. Right. In any event, Jeff had a love of animals, and um, I did research um, farm therapy, animal therapy, any kind of therapy, structured sober house living. I googled it and came up with a couple of different models in the state of Massachusetts. However, um, some of them were cost prohibitive and not exactly um, what I was looking for. Happened to come upon, at the time, it was Cultivate Care, uh, which counseling, which is now Cultivate Care Farms. Um, they're based after a Dutch model of farm-based therapy. We brought Jeff to this place in December, and it was like he went to heaven. We could see glimpses of our old son coming back very quickly. He reunited with his family. It was just like a miracle in 24 hours. He had a love of life. They gave him a sense of responsibility. They gave him a sense of worth. He looked forward to getting up every day working with the animals, working with the people on the farm. Um, I'm probably biased, but it was the best best thing we ever did and the best money we ever spent on his recovery. I, I picked Jeff up at the airport. I think it was a Thursday night. Dropped him off there. Two hours later, he called me and said, I think I'm going to like this place. And the next day, he called. and I would get a call every day at work and tell me a story about something that happened at Cultivate Care Farms or, or, or at the time Cultivate Council, whether it was about the cats or about the horse and about the horse treatment. And then I was getting phone calls from my sister-in-law down in, in North Carolina saying that Jeff called and talked to Bruce for an hour and a half about horses. And then I 
talked to my sister Pat saying, oh, Jeff called Sharon down in Florida and talked to him. And as Lynn said, he started to, what he loved was his family when he was younger. And he started all those reconnections again. Mm -hmm. And it was so nice to hear from people saying, boy, we're here. Gee, Jeff is back. We're hearing from Jeff. And we saw that. And we, and we there was, and, and again, it was that connection with the animals. It did, it did something for him. And, and Deb and Andrew kind of know how that works better than we do, all right? But we've seen, we saw this in action with our own son, and it did, and it brought our old son back to us, which was really, really nice. And we had a Christmas that we hadn't had in a number of years where Jeff came home, and we, I just sat there and watched my son on the couch. He, I don't think he moved off the couch all day, just sitting there enjoying his family. And that compared to prior years where you didn't see him on Christmas Day except when it was come, time to come down to have something to eat or drink and he would disappear again. He was back and loved just sitting there being with everybody. It's a great story and, and what, a, uh, what a segue into what I was going to talk about, which, which is um, you do lose the sense that your loved one is still there. From personal experience, I can tell you I've experienced that for many, many years. And the gift of getting that, seeing that that person is still there and, and then seeing them blossom and come out of their substance use disorder and their mental health issues to show you that they're still there and to have that gift of time with them for that Christmas is really something that's that's uh, breathtaking. So Jeff did experience some recovery through this program, to say the least. Yes. And he, he had a, he had did. an enormous connection with the animals, particularly one uh, his favorite horse, Bubba. Bubba. Yeah. Bubba. Bubba. Which if I believe if you go on the Cultivate Cares Farm website, you can see Bubba. Bubba's on there. Bubba's oh, yeah. on yeah. Bubba's on the uh, on the site. Um, I will never forget Jeffrey's service with Bubba uh, walking around the uh, walking around the pen, and 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 the wonderful part about that, I was saying to Andrew and Deb before you you came, Joe and Lynn, was that uh, as someone that had nothing, had no uh, experience with with farm-based therapy, I was able to interact with Bubba, and uh, he had a flower, I believe, behind his ear, and uh, we were told on the way in that this was Jeff's uh, Jeff's buddy, and um, I really felt a connection. Um, and I was I was really blown away um, by that experience uh, and by the farm. Um, so you are now um, very very involved with the farm, uh, Joe and Lynn. Can you can you talk a little bit about why you decided to become involved? Sure. Um, first of all, obviously, <clears throat> we lost our child, and um, because of the epidemic in this country in the state of Massachusetts. Um, Joe and I refused to let our son's death be just a statistic. Um, he loved the farm. We want that to be his legacy. The only avenue we could think of to make that happen was to become involved with Cultivate Care Farms. Uh, I have to tell you, it's been very healing for me. Forget the fact that we're doing this for Jeff's legacy. When I go up to the farm... Everything disappears. You're reconnected to nature and the animals, and it's just, it's euphoric, actually. And that's without any intervention from the licensed mental health counselors that work there. Right. Um, but in any event, um, this is Jeff's legacy. So Joe and I have decided that we will do anything in our power to make Cultivate Care Farms in this type of therapy a very... Um, I don't know if mainstream is the right word, but a very um, accessible accessible and accepting mm -hmm. method of mental health Interesting. therapy. Interesting. 
you know, and I, I w- I'm very drawn to the fact that this is um, considered an alternative type of therapy in mainstream American mm-hmm. culture right now, yet the Dutch... Uh, had this for hundreds of years. And I want to bring into the conversation now uh, both Andrew Lappin and Deb Madeira. Uh, Andrew, um, you are the executive director of the farm? Yeah, I founded the farm. You founded the farm. And Deb, you are the clinical director clinical director of, of um, Cultivate Care Farms Incorporated now. Yes, sir. Um, and so as I understand it, based on talking to you before, the farm was uh, started in 2015, Andrew, by yourself. Yes. You know, I was working in community mental health as an intern, and I was very early in my clinical training, and I already was really disenchanted by the very fracturous system we had for treating mental health and substance abuse. And um, it started as a job search. You know, I had, I had finished my, my degree, and I was thinking about what to do, and I, I wanted to work someplace that was more effective than just sitting in a bland room talking about your problems. And so I did my research, and came across the Dutch care farm model. It's 500 years old. It predates the psychiatric profession, mind you. And it has become a very uh, well-researched approach. There's research all the time coming out of mostly Northern Europe. Um, But essentially, the underlying data concludes that being part of a farm community builds in a sense of resilience and a sense of purpose that you just don't get by sitting in an office. Resilience and purpose. Uh, and there, there are two things that someone struggling with substance use disorder don't have when they're in the middle of their of Well, their I would actually active... disagree with you. I think people with substance abuse disorders are incredibly resilient. They're fighters. They're, they're people that have found a way to get by with a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad I'm glad you clarified that. That's really interesting. The, um, the other piece of it that really kind of connects um, with the care farm model is that sense of community that a lot of people who have been using lose when they stop using. Okay. Um, the community that they had belonged to, uh, they've probably burned a lot of bridges. And the community they've most recently belonged to, which is other substance abuse um, people, are... Uh, no longer accessible to them if they're in recovery. So we give them a sense of community. I get it. Okay. Uh, very, very interesting. Well, let's, without any further ado, let's dive into, you know, the history of it is your grand, your grandmother gave you a $6,000 loan. Yeah. To get so I, I mean, I don't come from, I had nothing, right? So I had a, I had a friend in, in Acton who was very generous and kind enough to give us a 12 by 12 piece of office in her barn. And she had a very successful and really wonderful horseback riding business and said, here's a corner of my property as well to start a a barnyard. Why don't you try this farm therapy idea you had? And I was just hoping to maybe make a little bit of side money to pay off some of my student loans. Um, So I asked a friend of mine from the clinic where I was uh, interning and and then working um, if she wanted to also jump ship. And she very bravely said, sure. And so we just we kind of went for it. There was no manual. There was no instructions on how to run a farm-based therapy program in the U.S. Um, there are other farms that have what they call therapeutic programs, but they're not run by licensed clinicians. They don't have a clinical focus. And there are inpatient programs if you have six months and 20 grand a month to attend. Um, we didn't want to be that. So we opened up kind of, you know, we knew how to be clinicians and we knew how to treat people. Um, and we very quickly found the eGala model, the Equine Assisted Growth and Learning Association, which is a unmounted or non-riding approach to working with horses. 
And this is a model that's been then been used in all sorts of settings, schools, individuals, even in prisons, I was reading. Yeah, yes. so EGAL is based in, in Utah, but they're an international organization, and they train and certify equine-assisted psychotherapists. And it's a team approach where you have two professionals in the arena, a clinician, and in our functioning, it's often Deb. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm certified as a clinician as well as an equine specialist, so that's someone who's making sure the horses are safe and healthy and all of that, but... Um, we adopted the eGala model and started to adapt it to working with sheep and goats, and chickens, um, and other kind of livestock with the, the notion that if we could take thrown away and cast off animals and pair them with people who have been beat up and thrown off by their families and cast off by society, we're going to let them heal each other. Uh, you know, I, I, which is... Um I was reading on your website and a little bit about your background, and one of the things that jumped off the page at me was that you don't focus on a diagnosis. You don't start where a lot of physicians or mental health professionals start, and that's let's figure out how to label somebody bipolar, manic, et cetera, et cetera. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because what we have is an experiential approach to mental health and healing, Diagnosis doesn't really play a heavy role in that. Uh, We treat the person who's in front of us at the time. Um, A diagnosis can certainly be helpful when we're discussing cases among colleagues or needing to communicate with somebody outside of our own uh, organization. But in all honesty, when we're doing the experiential work, it's about the client's experience in the moment. It's not about their past. It's not necessarily about their future. It's about the here and now. And that's what the animals are really exceptionally good at having clients experience. Right. And you're treating substance use disorder and mental health all as one thing. Yes. Um, which, which, in fact, in my experience anyway, it seems to be true. <laughs> well, I mean, Lynn touched on this a bit, this fracturous system of, yeah. well, if you're substance abuse, you get treated over here and in this corner. Right. And if you're mental health, you're in this corner. But what people, and I think we're not the first people to have this thought, many, many do, that Substance abuse is born of mental illness. Mm-hmm. It's born of pain. It's born of trauma. It's born of different psychiatric or I'm sorry, psychological experiences that have disrupted your life in some way. And now substances are a way to manage and cope with that. So if we can find that underlying psychological issue, if we can find the reason that, you know, that where substances became necessary in order to survive, Let's find another way to survive and go mm-hmm. from surviving now to thriving. Right. So uh, you are uh, primarily an outpatient facility at the moment. So what what would a typical therapeutic session look like for sub- somebody with substance use disorder? And I ask that question that way specifically uh, for there, a reason. There is no typical session. Okay. There is no typical session. With, with one caveat, we do run one group that's specifically for adults in recovery, mm-hmm. and that's structured. Okay. And that's a group therapy. It's a little different, but Deb's going to touch on individual. Okay. So um, tell, me, tell me more about that individualized care. So for any particular client that comes in, it is truly an individualized plan. Um, we meet with them. We get a sense of what's going on for them. Um, we will diagnose because that's part of our standard of care. But the diagnosis does not carry with them out onto the farm property to, to actually um, be piece of, a piece of how they are involved with the farm or the animals. And the diagnosis doesn't change how we treat at all. It does not change how we treat. Okay. Um, and somebody with uh, the same diagnosis, we could have two people with bipolar diagnoses have two completely different experiences um, during treatment on the farm. Sure. It really is based on that individual. Okay. So, so this, this is a, a, I mean, to me, it's, it, it makes a lot of sense intuitively. I'm not in the field. 
but uh, people people bring with them they're a very, very unique footprint, um, a very, very unique imprint on themselves, which is uh, unique experiences, be it trauma, be it uh, you name it, uh, upbringing, et cetera, et cetera. So rather than taking a cookie-cutter approach um, based on a diagnosis, you're looking to tailor uh, exactly what somebody needs to that person individually. Mm-hmm. And right. you're doing that in a, in a community setting, in a and, communal setting with and, animals. And the clients actually lead us. Um, we follow the lead of the client. Okay. The client will tell us what they need. Mm-hmm. Um, they might not verbally tell us what they need, but their interactions with the animals and, and uh, with the property itself will actually express their needs to us pretty clearly. And the animals can do things that no therapist can. And I don't care how empathic or loving you are. Every person carries judgments and they carry their own histories and that comes into the room. And my experiences as a person, I might have judgments about this therapist. Maybe I struggle with with their gender or their presentation or something about the way they look. And there's that human piece here. Animals don't care what color you are. They don't care how poor you are. They don't care who you love. They don't care what your parents have done. They don't care at all. All they care about is right now, are you going to show up for me? It's an it's an incredible um, thought uh, to be able to be, be in that environment and and be around animals like that because like you said they don't they don't carry with them those baggages and those uh, I was really interested in learning about horses uh, on your website and that horses in the, in the herd each one of them have a unique role and responsibility within the herd and they have moods and 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 your clients are actively engaging with with horses horses the, are very interesting in that they're these massive creatures that are prey animals and people forget that these are natural prey animals they they live in a herd they rely on their herd for safety and protection there's an alpha right there's someone who's their protector Mm -hmm. and there's a whole hierarchy and there's a daily struggle to get to the top (laughs) and so and that looks different for every different herd and um so the hor- and there's a lot of really great interesting research that horses can smell some some estimate 40 times better than a dog that they can read human facial cues if you're ever riding a horse and you get lost drop the reins they know their way home and that's not just an old cowboy legend it's true yeah um you know so there are these incredibly intelligent creatures that also are very vulnerable and fragile and and how does that translate to a therapeutic environment for a client so lots of times um Clients also feel very vulnerable. So seeing that these ginormous animals um, that could easily stampede you if you allowed them to, uh, don't. Um, they are actually incredibly responsive. And Bub is a perfect example. He is the biggest horse of the herd. He's, what, nearly 2,000 pounds. Yeah, he's 16 hands, if that means anything to a horse person. Um, he, he, I can tell you he's huge. He, yeah. he is a big, burly guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he is the alpha of the herd. Yeah. But when people are with him, he is the most gentle of all four of our horses. He will approach people. He wants to be with people. He wants to engage with people. Now, this big, scary animal is suddenly putty in your hands. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things that I often do with people who are really, really struggling with having any sense of power for themselves, I teach them how to back him up. Um, You have to lean in a certain way and kind of push on his shoulder. And he'll take three or four steps back. Now, somebody who's felt very powerless for a long time, has just moved this enormous horse, that is an experience that they will carry with them for the rest of the day, the rest of the week, possibly the rest of their lives, that 
even though I felt powerless, I could still do this. Isn't that interesting? So, so rather than the t- traditional model where you're sitting on a couch, well, lying on a couch was the old the old uh, stereotype, but you're sitting in, in a chair across from somebody and you're all that type of thing. Uh, clients are having experiences that, uh, um, and I and I read that uh, that the interaction with the horses and the herd it, it can be used metaphorically uh, as you're as you're speaking and and counseling your clients. Um, you just mentioned one power. Mm-hmm. Power, getting some power, getting some self-esteem uh, centered based on the fact that they're interacting with these enormous animals and they're learning how to communicate with them. Mm-hmm. Another piece of it is that many of the clients that, that we see um, haven't been caring for themselves very well and they certainly haven't been caring for others. So we give them the opportunity to successfully care for animals. Right. And I and I think Joe, you expressed that and Lynn, I think Joe, you expressed that about Jeff. Jeff was was a caretaker to Bubba, was he not? Mm-hmm. He certainly was. And I can remember and maybe Deb could add to this, but when Bubba had his tooth taken out. Oh yeah. Tooth, yeah. Okay. Um Jeff oh boy did I hear about that. But uh-huh. what but you know that was a very traumatic experience for Bubba. It, Jeff couldn't even stay when the the vet was there to pull the tooth because he was too upset about it. So he left and came back afterwards and stayed with Bubba while he came back out of the anesthesia. It's incredible. I mean, if you ever take your kid to get a tooth pulled and how much they whine, now imagine a two thousand pound animal. Sure, <laughs> his whining. Sure, sure. But he, but he needed a very specific care and he had to have his the wound flush and it had uh-huh. to be cleaned and take like very specific instructions and. It got to the point where we were asking Jeff yeah. for like, so how did how do you take it? How was it? And how did you do with it? And and he was making recommendations. Well, maybe we should try more of this, and maybe we should do that. And and he was right. His intuition was right every time. So yeah, this 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 hands-on approach. This is this is a hands-on. So people know this is this is a working mm-hmm. hands-on approach. Jeff was feeding Bubba. Jeff was taking care of him. Jeff was developed an emotional bond with Bubba. One of the worst tasks on the farm is, of course, cleaning up after course, the horses. Yeah. Um, and when people first start with us, we, you know, just 15 minutes, give us 15 minutes of cleaning the poo up. And if it's not done, that's fine. Sure. It can be done. He'd be like, okay, I'll give you 15 minutes and he'd go out. And then an hour later he'd come back and he'd be like, yeah, I cleaned the whole thing while I was out there. (laughs) (laughs) That's wonderful. And so you've got, you know, as it says on your site, that's the hands-on experience with the animals that help clients work through things like pain, work through trauma. Yeah. So a a lot of times a first session might look like we go into the arena with the horses and I and we might say just get to know them and we get these very confused looks like what are you talking about get to know them uh, we don't tell them the horses names we don't tell them their stories we don't tell them genders all let me take off their halter the whole thing all they have are horses and again these aren't specially trained horses they're not from some great program it's this is just they're being horses and so you know, the, the questions we come back with, or the clients often come back with all different things. Well, this horse is really kind. This horse, I can tell, has been through things. Or this horse looks mean. And it's asking more questions. This well, horse doesn't like me mm. is one that we frequently get. Interesting. Yeah, why is that? Why do you think that is? Well, maybe it's because I smell. <laughs> or maybe because that one likes food and I don't have it. And, well, this one now, this one's really, really a lot like my dad. This one's like my mom. This one really likes me and I like her. And that's like my best friend. And so the horses, they start to play roles in your life. And that's what we want them to. But we don't tell the clients that. It just happens. You know, so they start to become placeholders. So that horse that was, uh, you know, that that horse isn't very attractive. No one really likes that horse. That horse is unimportant. 
Is this really about a horse? Or that horse is my dad. Yeah. Okay. Well, I know you have some things that you've wanted to say to your dad that you don't feel like you can. Go say it to that horse. Wow. Just to remind people, we're speaking with Cultivate Care Farms Incorporated, Joe and Lynn Wankus, and uh, we're honoring uh, their son Jeffrey's memory with uh, Cultivate Care Farms Incorporated. We have Deb Madeira, who's the clinical supervisor, and we also have Andrew Lappin, who is the uh, founder and uh kind of creator, if you will, of, of this wonderful enterprise currently up in Bolton, Massachusetts. I would encourage anybody that's listening today to get out and visit Cultivate Farms. They can be found on the web. We will give you their web address and telephone number shortly. Um, but I would highly encourage a visit up there. Um, I assume you, you, you welcome visitors? Yeah, we have a scheduled tour um, once a week. You just need to contact us to get on that tour. Mm-hmm. And Joe and Lynn, you saw, as you said, I just want to emphasize this. You saw an immediate change in Jeff. Yes, um, immediate, within 24 hours, 48 hours. I mean, um, it, it was a gradual change, but it was a change for the better. It was definitely um, a reconnection, a slow reconnection, which, you know, happened very in a very short amount of time, whereas in the the last 10 years, um, you know, we we were interacting with a child who looked like our son, Jeff, but wasn't Jeff. Joe, you noticed it right away. In, in what I noticed right away was, again, like Lynn said, it was a gradual change, but his attitude changed within 24 to 48 hours. I'll, I think he realized that I found a place that's going to work, that's going to help me. I think he recognized that right away within that first day of being there. And that's what we saw change was his, he went from rejecting or I'm, I'm not going to be part of this to accepting the program and saying, I want to be here. Well, you, it gave him a purpose. Yep. I think that's the most important thing is that it did give him mm-hmm. a, a purpose. Um, for a long time, he felt useless. Um, you know, what am I doing? I don't have any friends. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares. Um, the farm was everything. I mean, he couldn't, wa- he couldn't wait to get up in the morning, help with the animals, help Deb, help Andrew. If he was allowed to come home to visit us, he'd have to be back by 3.30 to, to feed the animals, even though we didn't have to go back until 9 o'clock that night. So um, it definitely gave him a sense of purpose with I think a lot of people suffering with substance use disorder and just mental health issues in general don't feel that they have a purpose in life, and it's so important. Right. And I think what Deb said earlier about Bubba, that connection Jeff made, that, you know, he, you know, all of a sudden he saw this animal needed care and needed, he needed people, you know, he needed Jeff to help him clean up after him, do all that. that that's what he saw right away, and I think what Lynn just said, it gave him a new sense of purpose in life that was missing for a number of years. And, you know, I, I thank you, Joe. I, I want to uh, emphasize something you said earlier, Lynn, and that's the, the 12 steps. Alcoholic, Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12 steps of recovery, that traditional model has been around since the 30s. 30s. Since the 30s. And you know what? It works for a lot of people, mm-hmm. but it doesn't work for a lot of people. Correct. Mm-hmm. And the fact of the matter is there are many, many treatment modalities available. And we as a, as a culture and as a society are so far behind in accepting something like this as mainstream therapy. Um, I, I, you know, things like yoga and meditation are starting to become part of our daily 
conversations with other people. But yet, you know, something that can take someone's blood pressure and basically that, that, that are hypertensive and knock it all the way down like yoga or meditation, we, we're not going to cover that under insurance. We'd rather pay for, for pills. And it's similar with substance use disorder and mental health. Um, I really want to get to a point that um, Joe made and Lynn made early on uh, when we were talking just before the show. And that is Cultivate Care was made accessible to you by uh, many of these these treatment centers people don't realize are very inadequately insured because insur- true insurance parity does not exist in our system and secondly the, the cost once you get beyond that is overwhelming uh, and most families can't afford that and that wasn't the case with cultivate cultivate care farms was it correct um although we um knew that we they did not accept insurance um, that was a state issue. I mean, we had tried right. many times with the state, to, and right. the state just kept saying, no, you're not right. a facility inside yep. a nursing right. home. Yep. And obviously, the ideal situation is to have insurance cover at least part of it. Um, because, you know, when you're going through this for 10, 15 years, and you've drained your bank account and barred against your 401k, and you're 64, 65 years old, and you have to start thinking about retirement. You have to be careful about a little bit, somewhat careful about your money. But in any event, um, when calling Cultivate Care, um, we talked about prices, um, and Andrew was willing to work with us on what we could afford. Um, would I, would I have loved it to be free? Absolutely, <laughs> but it wasn't. But I mean, they are so reasonable compared to other structured sober living environments in the state of Massachusetts that I looked into. And one thing I can say, and this is one of the reasons why Joe and I decided to get involved in the U organization, is um, we're firm believers in their um, model of therapy, but we believe everybody, everybody is entitled to the same treatment. Absolutely. And we found that that is just not the case right now. That that is, you know, Lynn, uh, uh, I I hear it all the time. Um, And, you know, Patrick Kennedy is fighting for insurance parity uh, like he did for mental health. But you know what? The fact of the matter is we have have many hurdles to go to, to cross before we get there. But the fact that you're willing to stand up and be counted, the fact that you're willing to talk about this publicly, the fact that Cultivate Care exists today, and we want it to continue to exist. So I want to kind of touch on some of the challenges that you are currently facing, uh, Andrew and Deb, in keeping Cultivate Care farms open. So thank you. A couple things to notice. The four of us in this room, we this is it. There's no big company backing us. There's not some big investor. Like, we're just normal people, right? Like, we started with $6,000 from my grandmother. That's it, right? So we don't have some deep pocket to weather some big storms. We're just here to help people. Um, we did re- this year become a nonprofit organization, a move that we had always wanted to do, and it seemed like it was the right time. Um but we also have had insurmountable stigma attached to where we are. So we have had, um, you know, our, the town of Bolton has uh, broken the law, state and federal law, to shut down our sober house. We are now in the process of working through the state attorney general's office and the Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination um, to rectify that. However, the town of Bolton has denied, rejected mediation. Yep. They've rejected any attempts to 
realize that they have broken the law. And so we're going to federal court. This is discrimination, and it, we're not going to stand for this. So we don't, and again, we don't have tons of money to do this. Right. And if, but it, it needs to happen. Sure. Absolutely. Sure. I, I mean, um, I attended some of the meetings with Andrew and Deb, and um, I honestly believe that, um, you know, until it happens to them, they're just going to say, not in my backyard. Not in my backyard. Not and, in my backyard. you know, and I hate to say this, I can get it. I was there probably 10, 15 years ago. Um, and I struggled with it in the beginning of our journey with Jeff. However, going through this now and understanding that it's just not a choice and these people didn't decide to become addicts or, you know, they didn't say, oh, I want to grow up and be bipolar or whatever. You know, I mean, it's not a choice. It's, it's the hand they were dealt. And um, we as a community, as a, civiliza- a civilized society, have to help these people. And you know what? We're all in it together. I don't I don't care if you're not impacted by it. You will be someday if we don't stand up and do something about it now. You know, Lynn, I would argue that the entire world is impacted yeah. by it. When a community suffers a loss, when a community has health uh, issues like this in it, uh, everybody's impacted. Um, businesses are impacted. Families are impacted. Schools are impacted. Um, this truly is, as you said very, very well, a societal problem. And we cannot segment, segment off this portion of the society and say, you know what, you're different than, you're separate than. And as Andrew said earlier, this is a matter also of the law and the law being violated. So what what can somebody do to get involved with Cultivate Care and support your mission uh, moving forward? So uh, the obvious one is as a nonprofit, we are always seeking donations. We are seeking strategic partnerships with companies looking to um, improve their community relations. Um, so investments in that sense but also even the small inv- the small donation $25 $50 that goes a long way when you're a little operation people don't realize that $50 that feeds bubba for the week in <laughs> <laughs> Jim just to bring that point up again this is this program's different the animals are part of the program the animals are an additional cost that aren't out there with the regular program right. mm-hmm. so there is an additional cost that so therefore, the you know donations are needed to help care for the animals. They and, are, are to just saying to you know veterinary care, feed care. Those aren't there with a the regular program. And if we have the business community uh, listening, I would think that sponsorships and um, partnerships would be a wonderful way of going about this. I'm familiar with uh, Megan's house up on the on the North Shore in Lowell, I believe, or Lawrence, um, where a gentleman lost his daughter and, and opened a sober home and did bring in the business community and partnered with them. Um, I think the business community has a lot to gain by forming these alliances, and I would encourage uh, businesses, uh, be they in the Bolton area or not, to uh, reach out to Cultivate Care Farms and see how they can help. Um, Deb, from your perspective, you've been in this field for 17 years now. Yes. And um, you worked in schools. You've worked in various therapeutic environments. You are very excited about this model. Um, can Can you share with me about what it means for you for this model to continue and for Cultivate Care Farms to continue? Well, I've, over the 17 years that I've been working in this industry, um, I've seen how it's become more and more challenging for families uh, to get the services they need Mm -hmm. at a cost that they can afford. Um, Schools are suffering because this epidemic impacts families. Um, And a lot of children are falling through the cracks because the schools 
uh, are not necessarily valuing the social emotional health of the children. So there, this is just the tip of the iceberg right in, now. In this particular model, you, you find, I know, I saw your enthusiasm before the show. This is something that you are really passionate about. This is something that... This is why you're still in the field, I think, right? This, this is why I'm still in the field. Yeah. Um, about two years ago before I found Cultivate, I was questioning whether or not to even stay in the field. Sure. I was so jaded by the system. Sure. Um, I met Andrew, learned about uh, what he wanted to do, and decided... Okay, let's give this a shot. Okay. And the amount of recovery and uh, amount of successes that I have seen, the number of successes I have seen in the two years that we've been doing this work has been absolutely mind-blowing for mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I never really understood the power of the animals until I saw it firsthand. Mm. Um, and um, at, at this point, I actually take on probably too many interns every fall uh, because I feel like if we can start educating the younger clinicians in this model, um, it will be less foreign to everyone. And they can bring it back to their colleges and be like, listen, look at this. This is working. This is amazing. This doesn't have to be this this crazy non-traditional thing. This can be something that everyone does and does well. Right. We, we have to see that this, this model um, continues. We, we need to commit ourselves to Cultivate Care Farms, Inc., and hope that others uh, follow in your lead. Um, and so I'd like to ask you to give people information on how they can contact you. Yeah. But real quick, I want to note that we have, um, we are uh, just a couple of weeks away from now accepting health insurance. Oh my God! Which has been a huge, huge hurdle. Wow! With state licensing and with different perm, it's been a headache. Um, but we will soon be accepting Blue Cross Blue Shield, um, and we will soon take Tufts. Tufts. Yes. Yeah, Tufts. I have to look at my committee that's, here. That, that's phenomenal. So this is, and we're looking to take more and more. It's just, it's very difficult. It's a very difficult and expensive process to get into. So, but and because we are a non-traditional approach, um, insurance companies can kind of give us the side eye a little bit around whether or not it's something they feel comfortable covering. Well, well just the fact, just, and I didn't know that when you came in, just the fact that Blue Cross Blue Shield and an organization like Tufts even entertains covering it, let alone gives mm-hmm. you the green light. says a lot about this type of therapy and your success. They don't cover things that they don't want to cover. No, and that speaks to the fact that we have licensed clinicians doing this work, not just people that like animals and think it's great to help you out cleaning out a stall. Like, we have licensed clinicians working side by side in a clinical model. So, but... That insurance fee barely covers the expense of the session, does not cover the cost of the animal feed. It doesn't cover the cost of, of maintenance of veterinary care, as Joe was saying. And so we need donations. Okay. So cultivatefarms.org. Cultivatefarms.org is the website. And what is your telephone number? 978-440-0763. Okay. Could you give that one more time? Yeah, it's 978 440 0763. Terrific. Um, I want to thank the show. The name of our show is Chapters. And what we've done today is talk uh, through Jeff Wankus and the Wankus family's experience. We have spoken about uh, mental health. We've spoken about substance use disorder. We've spoken about some of the failings of the current system. And happily, we've spoken about one of uh, a, 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 a wonderful solution uh, which exists right here in Massachusetts, in Bolton, Massachusetts, uh, Cultivate Care Farms Incorporated. And I want to encourage people once again, please call Andrew or Deb. Uh, please contact them any way you can. Take the ride up to Bolton. 
take a walk around the farm, get a chance to experience the animals, get a chance to meet these wonderful people. Um, I feel, I, I really feel so grateful to Jeffrey and the Wenkes family, Joe and Lynn, for having had the experience to be at your farm property um, during Jeff's service. Um, while it was uh, tremendously sad, it also was tremendously uplifting uh, seeing Jeff through the animals and, and learning about his experiences with Bubba. Uh, hearing about his um, really successful recovery for the period of, of Christmas and through the holidays so that you you actually got to experience that with him, Joe and Lynn. Do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up? Um, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to let us speak. Again, um, this is Jeff's legacy, so important to us, and I want people to know that we need to end the stigma We need to look at alternative ways of dealing with all mental health issues, not just substance use disorder. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And and Jim, we we mentioned this a couple times. You heard it and you hear it in Bolton, all right? Not in our backyard. In other words, they don't want it. But drug addiction and mental health issues are in everybody's backyard. It's here. There is no dividing lines. Joe and Lynn, thank you for your courage, for sharing Jeff with us and and his story. Thank you for introducing our audience and me to Cultivate Care Farms, Inc. I want to thank you, Deb and Andrew. And I just want to um, also remind our listeners, I believe you'll speak to to any audience that will hear you, right, Jeff and Lynn? Uh, That is correct. Okay. So Lynn and Joe are available to speak about their experience with Cultivate Care Farms and their son, Jeff, and uh, continue to honor his legacy. So again, for my guests, Cultivate Care Farms, Inc., Joel and Lynn, Lynn Wankus, my name is Jim Derrick. Thanks for listening.